Welcome back to Informed and Inflamed, where we seek to inform our minds with truth in order to inflame our hearts with love for God and neighbor. I'm Brad Owens, and I'm excited that you're joining me today for another episode. We are making good progress through our Cracker Jack acronym, which helps us unpack God's big story in Scripture. God's Word has a redemptive flow to it, and this acrostic gives us some handlebars to hold on to as we learn how to put together all the various books of the Bible into one cohesive big picture. In this episode, we're going to talk about the kingdom period in the Old Testament. That's the K in the word cracker. Remember that cracker summarizes the story of the Old Testament, and Jack summarizes the story of the New Testament. Both the Old Testament and the New are telling one big story. But as we progress along, the later parts of the Bible build off of the earlier parts. Through it all, though, God has one plan of salvation and one supreme purpose— to glorify His own great name, and to do good to His people. As we tackle the kingdom period in the Old Testament, let's first get a sense of what happens during this period. After God establishes the covenant with Moses and Israel after rescuing them from Egypt, a lot happens to get us to the kingdom period. After Moses dies, Joshua leads the people of Israel into the promised land of Canaan to take possession of it. They begin that great work of conquering the land as their promised inheritance and began settling down in it. The book of Judges shows how, as they moved into the promised land and sought to slowly extend their borders as far as God had promised, the Lord raised up local judges, or rescuers, to provide salvation for God's people from their enemies and to rule over them. There's some crazy stuff that happens in the book of Judges that will totally knock your socks off. And as it turns out, there's a helpful acronym for the book of Judges that helps you understand the cycle God's people go through over and over again throughout that book of the Bible. And the acronym is actually SOCKS, just without a K. That's why I said that judges will knock your socks off. So SOCKS, without a K, S-O-C-S, stands for sin, oppression, crying out, and salvation. And this is the pattern of the book of Judges. God's people sin yet again. They are oppressed by surrounding nations as God's wise fatherly discipline for their unfaithfulness. They cry out for deliverance, and God raises up a judge to provide salvation for them. So it's socks, sin, oppression, crying out, and salvation. And this cycle happens again and again throughout the book of Judges. And as the transition between this period of the Judges to the period of the kingdom, Samuel anoints Saul as the first king of Israel. So as we move from judges into the monarchy, Saul is the first king over the kingdom that God establishes to rule over all 12 tribes of Israel. After Saul comes King David, and after David comes King Solomon. And Saul, David, and Solomon, each one of them ruled over the United Kingdom of Israel from approximately the years 1050 BC all the way through 930 BC. Each of them reigned about 40 years each. When Solomon's son Rehoboam ascends to the throne after Solomon, his foolishness causes the kingdom to split into two. The northern kingdom, which contained ten tribes, became known as Israel, and the southern kingdom, which contained two tribes, became known as Judah. 
So that's a very brief flyover of what happens between the period with Moses and the Exodus and the establishment of the kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon. But for the purposes of this episode, I want to distinguish between two dimensions of God's rule over all things as king. The kingdom period in the Old Testament is meant to teach us about God's kingship over everything. And as we'll see, the covenant God establishes with King David has so much to do with Jesus. But first, let's make a distinction between God as the king of creation and God as the king of salvation. Or another way to put it is to distinguish between God's royal rule and his redemptive rule. Vaughn Roberts, in his book, God's Big Picture, says something that fits with this discussion really well. He says, But God wants to bring back to himself a people who willingly submit to his rule. That is what is meant by the kingdom of God, not the area where he rules, for he always rules everywhere, but the sphere where his rule is gladly accepted. So when I say God is the king over all creation, I'm talking about that first aspect of his rule, that he always rules everywhere. He is the sovereign king over everything all the time. Nothing can escape his sovereign control over all. As Job says in Job 42 verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And when I refer to God as the king of salvation, I'm talking about that second aspect that Vaughn Roberts mentions, the sphere where his rule is gladly accepted. So these two categories certainly overlap, but distinguishing them also helps us understand why we see so many things in the world that are not good and are not as they should be. God is still bringing his redemptive rule to bear in human hearts as history continues unfolding. But let's think for a few moments about God as the king of creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, the big story of the Bible begins with this powerful king creating all things that exist. As John Frame has said, his lordship attributes are control, authority, and presence. And we see all of these things in the opening chapters of the Bible. God has such massive authority that he can speak and things come into existence. And he controls what happens and fashions things out of nothing. And we also see that God is present with his creatures and involved in his creation. He walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. They were made to enjoy his presence and to know and love him. And these three things, God's control, his authority, and his presence are carried throughout every single page of God's word. This is what it means for God to be king over his good world. And what comfort this should bring us to know that God rules over all and nothing can hinder his good purposes from being accomplished. When we walk through our dark valleys, God's control over our circumstances can bring us comfort, even as the pain of suffering lingers much longer than we want it to. We long for relief, but sometimes it is slow in coming. And as we wade through hard things, God's sovereignty can be a soothing ointment for our wounds as we remember that there is purpose in our pain. As Dane Ortland has said, our tears are God's tools. Through the things that hurt us, God is chiseling away at our character, making us more like himself. And even as we look at big picture things in the world that are beyond our control, we can find rest in the fact that God is sovereign and steers history where he wishes. No matter how many things seem to be going wrong in our lives and in the world at large, 
we can find solace in God's good government over it all. No one and nothing can keep him from achieving what he wills to do. His good purposes will be done both in our individual lives and in the world as a whole. But not only is God the king of creation, he is also the king of salvation. Not only does his kingly authority involve his royal rule over everything, but it also involves his redemptive rule as he brings more and more people to recognize and to submit to his good authority and rule. As grace extends to more and more people, the transforming effects of God's grace gradually influence the world. As a person comes back into fellowship with the one true God who made them, the renewal of their hearts has a ripple effect outward into every other area of their lives. Their words, their decisions, their relationships, their work, and their community begin to change as a result of a heart transformed by God's amazing grace. The covenant in the Bible most associated with kingship, though, is the covenant of David. In 2 Samuel 7, we find the words of God's promise to David. And let me read a good little chunk of this, but let me give you something to listen for as I read through it. First of all, listen for the theme of kingship woven throughout it, but also listen for echoes of the covenant promises given to Abraham. If you remember from the episode on Abraham in this series, there were four P's, P words, that summarized the promises God gave to Abraham. People, place, presence, and purpose. God promised to make Abraham into a great nation, a massive people. And he also promised them the land of Canaan, which would be their own special place. And lastly, he promised that he would be with them always. His presence would go with them. And all of these blessings were given for a purpose, so that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. And you can find those promises laid out in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. But as I read 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 16, listen for echoes of those things. Remember, biblical covenants do not come in to replace previous covenants. Instead, they build on each other like you would build a layer cake by putting a new layer on top of the one that's already there. The covenants in the Bible typically work like that, although it's not purely that simple. Certain elements do get removed from the picture sometimes. Uh, For example, the sacrificial system became unnecessary after the reality of Christ's sacrifice came into the picture. But the idea of building a layer cake is still a very helpful way to think about the biblical covenants as they get laid on top of earlier covenants. But here's 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 16. And again, listen for echoes of the Abrahamic covenant and what God promises specifically to David as God's chosen king in these verses. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, hopefully you heard the echoes of the covenant with Abraham in the first half of those verses. And the promises about the kingdom are quite remarkable too. Israel has entered a new phase of its history with the establishment of the monarchy. But as the story of Israel unfolds afterwards, we see that things reach their high point under David and Solomon, but things quickly disintegrate after that, which raises questions about the promises we see here in 2 Samuel 7. God says that he will establish the throne of David's kingdom forever. And he also says that David's house and his kingdom shall be made sure before him forever. He says to David, your throne shall be established forever. That was the last line that we read. However, the rest of the Old Testament story does not live up to this at all. After the exiles, there's no more kingdom. Israel is a nation ruled by other kingdoms. And when Jesus comes on the scene centuries later, Israel is subject to the rule of the Romans. So we see that this promise from God never materialized, which means there's still an expectation that God will bring about this magnificent blessing someday. And what this teaches us is that Jesus came as the ultimate king to rule over his people and over the world. Because these promises were never realized by David or Solomon or any of their descendants, the fulfillment of them is still in the future. And this is exactly what we find in the New Testament. Jesus comes to take the throne of his father David. That's why it was so significant that Jesus came from Judah's line, because Judah was the royal line. All the way back in Genesis 49 verse 10, it says this of Judah, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Now, this is ultimately about King Jesus, the one who stands in David's line and whose kingdom has been established forever. After Jesus laid down his life for sinners, he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven to rule over all things as the glorious king of creation and of salvation. Now and throughout the rest of history, King Jesus' redemptive rule continues to exert itself in the transformation of sinners' hearts. God's powerful gospel as it is found on the lips of God's people faithfully sharing it, continues to turn people's worlds upside down. King Jesus' redemptive rule may be partial at the moment, but it is always growing. The light has shone in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it, as the Gospel of John says. Christ rose victorious over the grave, and his gospel will accomplish all that God intends for it to. As history continues to unfold, God's purposes will be done. That is our great hope and confidence. And He wants to use us to bring those redemptive purposes about. Most of all, this means we must be people whose lives are continually being changed by the gospel. And we must also be a people whose lips love to tell others about the gospel. But let me end by sharing again the quote by Vaughn Roberts about the kingdom of God. He says again, 
but God wants to bring back to himself a people who willingly submit to his rule. That is what is meant by the kingdom of God. Not the area where he rules, for he always rules everywhere, but the sphere where his rule is gladly accepted. This is what we long to see come about. More and more people gladly accepting the good and gracious rule of King Jesus. May that glad submission to God's rule begin in our hearts and have a ripple effect that moves outward into every area of our lives, resulting in others coming to gladly submit themselves to the King of grace as well. That is what we long for. That is what we pray for. And may God give us grace and courage to speak of Him in our relationships with those who do not yet know Him. Well, that is it for this episode of Informed and Inflamed. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to connecting with you again next time.